Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us master literary critic and novelist D.J. Taylor. D.J. Taylor is the author of a good number of well, very well-received books, including The Lost Girls, The Prose Factory, The Bright Young Things, and Orwell, A Life, which won the prestigious White Bread Award, and today we are discussing his latest book, Orwell, The New Life, published by Pegasus Books. Welcome, DJ, DJ Taylor. It's very good to be with you. Uh, why did you write this book? Ha. How long is a piece of string? There are principally, there are three reasons for uh, wanting to write it. Have another go at um, Orwell. One was uh, the discovery of quite a large amount of new material uh, in the intervening period. Two very substantial caches that letters came to light, which I was able to use. Uh, the second reason is that, that the number of people alive in the world who remember Orwell is dwindling rapidly. He died 73 years ago, and I've, according to my calculations, there are only seven people left in the world who knew him, so it's important to get them assembled. And the third reason, of course, is that um, biographies are necessarily snapshots of particular people, of particular points in time, uh, written by other particular people, and uh, views change. And 20 years later, it seemed it'd be interesting to have another look at Orwell using some of you know some different perspectives, perhaps from those used in the first attempt. What was Orwell's background on both sides of his family, and who were his parents? That's very interesting, uh, because Orwell was always regarded, certainly in the UK, as a quintessentially English writer, you know, whose fascination with various brands of Englishness is, is one of his strongest, um, strongest points. But in fact, Orwell had very little English blood at all. His father, Richard Blair, uh, was a lowland Scot uh, from long generations of, of you know, Scottish families. Uh, his mother was uh, his mother was uh, the daughter of a, of a family of French builders from Bordeaux, uh, who migrated largely to Burma in the middle of the nineteenth century. And so, um, uh, well, background I suppose is somewhat different from the persona that he likes to present to the world in his writings. How important was his family to Orwell, and how close was he to his parents? Well, here in, in that, that too is a fascinating question because Orwell was very much uh, a child of his time and his background. He described himself with a kind of a forensic precision that he brought to social arrangements, arrangements as being, uh, <clears throat> let me get this after it. he described himself as being lower, upper, middle class, uh, which meant that in uh, terms of English caste system, he was a gentleman. Um, and Although, and so his family, the, the key word that any of, most of his friends use when describing uh, the Blair family, because obviously his, his, 
original name was Eric Arthur Blair before he began calling himself George Orwell. And and the word that the word that everybody seems to use is undemonstrative. Uh, and he got on very well with his family, and they they adored him while while thinking him sort of rather odd and somewhat sort of detached from the world in which they they knew. But it was one of those families in in which very little was said. And so, for example, when Orwell came back from his period of serving as a as an imperial policeman uh, in Burma in 1927, when he came back and eventually announced to his parents that. Um, he wants to be a writer, which of course was in sharp distinction to all the jobs and the uh, and the kind of service that they'd ever done. Um, they were horrified, but not very much was said about it. And so I think that his his father, Richard Blair, uh, although bitterly upset by his son throwing over of imperial service, is supposed to have said that he was quote behaving like a dilettante, in other words, like a trifler, like a, an unserious person. And so, um, although I think they, they, he once, you know, he once very seriously asked of his friend, Richard Reese, he said, you know, do you love your family? He implied it was very important that one did have these great reservoirs of affection for the people closest to you. But it was the kind of family in which so much was implied and unstated as to, as to make it very difficult to sort of interpret on the surface. How important was the Indian background for Orwell? I think it was very important because he, uh, not only did he, it, 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 it sort of helped him towards his first choice of career in the Burma police because his father had been an Indian civil servant for many years. His mother's family, as I've said, came from Burma. And um, it pushed him towards working in the East, uh, you know, in what was then a British, uh, a British imperial possession. Uh, Burma was part of the Indian Empire. Uh, but it also, uh, according to his subsequent rationalization of it, it also pushed him towards the first um, things that he wrote about, because the first book that he, that his first, his first book published in 1933, of course, was down and out in Paris and London. And all his explanation for the research that he took, you know, going amongst the lowest of the low, pretending to be a tramp, <clears throat> working as a waiter in a Parisian hotel, his his explanation to this was that he'd seen the exploitation of of, of ordinary people in, in the British Empire when he worked in Burma, and so his his mission, as he saw it, was to to go native in his own country and see what social conditions were like down at the bottom of society uh, when he came back to England and then went to France. So I think it was very imp- and his you know his interest and subsequent dislike of British imperialism. I think the seeds of this was sown very, very early on, and uh, it was something to which he always returned. And a lot of the basis of his uh, political thought, I think, was founded on his experience of uh, serving the British Empire in the 1920s in the East. Why did his parents, really his mother, choose St. Cyprian's School for Orwell? I think they chose it because they they didn't know a great deal about the British educational system, uh, but they knew that uh, a fashionable preparatory school, as they're called uh, in England, was the way into a prestigious public school, as they're called in England. Uh, And I think news of St Cyprian's, which is on the south coast near Brighton in England, was brought to them by Orwell's uncle Charles, his his mother's uh, mother's brother, uh, who was the secretary of a golf club down on the south coast. And... um, it had the reputation uh, of getting bright boys into leading public schools. And it was also in the case of Orwell, whose parents didn't have that much money, 
they were prepared to take him at half the regular fee uh, on the grounds, the plausible grounds, that he would then win a scholarship to a, a major public school, which is what he did, which would then be a very good advertisement uh, to the education they provided. So I think that that's the reason he went to St. Cyprian. Was the portrait of the school painted in Orwell's essay, such, such were the joys at all true? It's very difficult to say. Uh, like much of what Orwell wrote, uh, and like much of what Orwell wrote about his own life, it's, uh, it, it's performative. I mean, Orwell is, is, is performing in public, and uh, he certainly, I think, believes it to be literally true. And, and I suppose all I can say is that I've researched, I've read many a memoir uh, by boys who went to that school, and I've read many a memoir by boys who went to other similar establishments in the early years of the 20th century. And some of them liked their education and some of them, you know, didn't like it. But nobody, nobody at all ever wrote of their formative years with such undisguised fury and savagery and satire as Orwell did of the St. Cyprian in such such with the joys. How did Orwell find his time in Eden? And why did he, for lack of a better expression, slack off while there? Well, I think I get the impression that although he uh, was sort of uh, I get the impression that he quite enjoyed himself at Eton uh, and that he liked the, the comparative freedom that it allowed because uh, he obviously he disliked St. Cyprian so much that he wrote a 15,000-word essay about it. He writes virtually nothing about Eton at all. Uh, and we know that he was actually quite interested in certain aspects of it. There's, a, there's an annual cricket match between Eton and Harrow, the other one of the other leading English public schools at Lord's Cricket Ground every summer. And Orwell not only attended this, uh, but, but seems to be mildly fixated on it. And it, it's referred to in his diaries deep into the 1930s. There was obviously something there that I think appealed to him. As for why he didn't do any work, I think that he'd, he'd simply been, that the, the efforts required of him when he was at prep school to win that scholarship was such that when he, he arrived aged uh, 13 at Eton, and, and, and although, um, you know, the, the, the amount of sort of uh, nose to the grindstone that, that prevailed at his prep school was not so, um, not, not, not so present at Eton. You know, you were expected to work hard, but if you didn't, nobody was going to stand over you and beat you, till you until you did. And I think the, probably Orwell was just grateful for the child not to have to work so hard when he was in his mid-teens. And he, um, uh, frankly, sort of idled. I mean, th this is a boy at the age of 13, was one of the most brilliant classical scholars in England, and yet who, I think, a year or two years later was coming bottom of his class at Latin and Greek, which was which was wholly unexpected for a boy of his ability. And I think he just he just decided that it was just easier uh, just to do the things that he wanted to do and, and, and not work so hard, which, of course, completely stymied his chances uh, of going to a major British university. I mean, according to his track record, Orwell should have proceeded to Oxford or Cambridge when he was 18 or 19, but uh, he just hadn't done enough work to, to win the scholarship that would have been necessary to get him in there. Why did Orwell go to Burma as part of the Indian Imperial Police? Well, I think it's, again, it's to do with his, to do with the family background. I mean, it's sometimes, uh, it's sometimes seen, this, this departure to Burma is sometimes seen as a kind of dreadful exile, you know, sending a 19-year-old boy 8,000 miles across the road to this far-flung and deeply remote and uncivilized part of the world. And yet, as Orwell pointed out in his application form to the India office, uh, you know, there was a long tradition of members of his family 
serving in the East. He had two. He had a grandmother and an aunt actually living in Burma at the time. He, he saw socially, so it wasn't really. It uh, it wasn't an exile. And there there are, I think, two that he may have had some kind of what we might call romantic vision of the East, because boys who were friends with his at school remembered him talking about the East in this kind of sort of blowing Kipling-esque terms. I wonder if that didn't have something to do with them. And interestingly, his friend Anthony Pohl, um, who was a very shrewd observer of Orwell, remarked of the, of the, of the decision to go and work in Burma that for all his brilliance, for all his astuteness, Orwell never really had much idea of what particular jobs consisted of. And so it was perfectly possible that he might have signed up for the Burma police without really knowing what the, what the job would have entailed. And how important was his experience in Burma to his future as a writer? Oh, very important. I mean, he, uh, he produced two of his very, two of his finest pieces of early reportage, which are the essays, uh, A Hanging and uh, Shooting an Elephant. And it also, of course, gave him the whole of his first novel, uh, Burmese Days, published in uh, in 1935. So uh, in terms of its formative influence on it, yes, Burma was very, very important. And why did he quit Burma and return to the UK in 1927? Again, it's, always, it's often assumed, I mean, if you're looking at his career in the RAB, it's, it's assumed that he simply became disgusted with British, the British imperialism. Uh, he was forced to serve and came home uh, and, and simply reputed it, repudiated it and came home. Now, that's not entirely the case because uh, he came home from Burma in 1927 because he was ill. He had dengue fever, which is a very nasty tick-borne virus. Uh, prevalent in the East. He came home to recover, uh, had six months leave, and um, although he then he'd had, you know, he was obviously having serious qualms about serving British imperialism at that point, but I don't think he made his mind up. And the other interesting thing, too, is that he came back with Burma uh, from Burma with an engagement ring, which he'd intended to present to a girl, a woman called Jacinta Bullicum, that he wanted to marry, and she wouldn't have him for various reasons. And um, I've often wondered what would have happened if she'd have said yes. Now, my suspicion is that Orwell would simply, the, the married couple would have simply gone back to Burma because that was the only means he had of earning any money at that time. And I think he would have carried on serving the Raj. So, hey, not quite as clear cut uh, his decision to resign from the Burma police as it sometimes seems. Why did he decide to become a writer? Youthful and literary imaginings, I think. He'd always, uh, Jacinta Barbicum, who wrote a very interesting memoir uh, of knowing him when he did his teens, he always had this thing about wanting to be, quote, a famous author. Uh, and even at the age of sort of 13, he would have these immensely sort of imaginative conversations about, you know, when, his, when the time came for his collected works, what colour would they be bound in, this sort of thing. So I think, I think the, um, the, the seeds of his literary imagination were sown very, very early on. How would you rate his reportage, his book, Down and Out in Paris and London? How would I rate it? Oh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic book. It's, um, it's wonderfully sharp and vivid, and there are descriptions in it. One, you know, one remembers as much as, you know, some, some of the great novels. Uh, there, there are ways, obviously, in which it's, it's a first book. It's an, it's an apprentice work, and you can see him. Um, and he's also, I think, sometimes taking liberties with his material, uh, you know, not, not, not simply writing... But I mean, all writers work up their material and, uh, you know, nothing is ever quite written down as realistically as it happened. But no, I'm, it's one of my favorite, I, I think one of the uh, one of the first few of his books that I read. And how good as fiction was his book about Burma, Burmese days? 
Well, um, it got a lot of criti- it got a lot of criticism at the time from people who'd served in Burma, saying it was exaggerated and its portrait of the English colonialists was 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 biased. Uh, the thing I when it, it's a very it's a very gloomy gloomy book. I mean, it, it, it's not giving too much away to say that the that Flory, the hero, commits suicide at the end to blows his brains out. But people often forget. Uh, so there are two things, two points I'd make about Burmese days which I find fascinating and, and half my enjoyment of it. One is that uh, he was completely obsessed and overcome by the landscapes of Burma. He'd seen nothing like them in his life before. And this affects the prose style, which is very much more aesthetic than some of his later stuff, with immense, uh, immensely imaginative figurative descriptions of the landscape. There's that aspect. The other thing that I like about it, it's actually very funny. It's very satirical, and uh, it's portrait of the scheming Burmese magnate Yupo Kim is, is very, very amusing, albeit it ends with, with tragic consequences for Flory. So it's, uh, although it ends, it's a very gloomy book in lots of ways. In another way, it's a very savage, satirical book, which I always rather like. How good overall were the novels that he wrote after Burmese days in the 1930s, and why did he refuse to have them reprinted later on? Well, this is uh, always, always like they have about all his books. Uh, not just his 30s novels. I mean, he even said of 1984 when he handed it in that it was a good idea, but he thought he'd mucked it up. Uh, but he particularly, you're right, he particularly took against uh, A Clergyman's Daughter and Keep the Asterisk to Flying, which were the two next novels he wrote in the 1930s. And as you say, he refused to have them reprinted in a standard edition of his books published uh, that began to be published just before he died. Um, and uh, in some way, the, I, I, this, is, this, is, this is misplaced condemnation to me because uh, Clergyman's Daughter, his second novel, was actually the first book novel of his that I read when I was about 13. And it had an extraordinary effect on me. I mean, I, I had no you know, sort of emotional or connect, connect, or um, I had no literal uh, social connection to, to the people in it. It's about a, yeah, it's about a, a 20-something spinster who lives in a Suffolk re- rectory and loses her memory and, and goes on the road with a uh, with a gang of tramps, just as Orwell himself had done, and yet it, there's a directness about the style and a kind of immediacy and a vividness about the descriptions that appeal to me. After the boy of twelve or thirteen, when I first read it, and, and continues to do now. I mean, it, I suppose, I mean, it's not his greatest novel. It's it's quite transparently uh, bits of his own autobiography stitched together uh, to produce, you know, um, uh, uh, to produce a two hundred and fifty page book, but. Uh, it's got some. It also the other fascinating thing about it to me is that it it advertises. It first advertises what to me is a particular concern of Orwell's that shines through all his work and is also evident uh, in 1984, which is Orwell's, Orwell's concern for um, what might be called the reservoirs of displaced religious sensibility floating around in the world. I mean, it, it's a novel. It's a rather old-fashioned novel in some ways about losing your religious faith. And what happens to if you do so, and what happens to a world in, in which people don't believe anymore? So it, it, it's a very important book in terms of Orwell's intellectual development. What was the background to his nonfiction book, *The Road to Wigan Pier*? Okay. Well, this is interesting. It was published in 1937 uh, at a time um, when tours of the depressed. This was the time of the, the, the depression of the 1930s when. Uh, certain in certain towns and cities in the north of England, as much as a third of the adult male population would be unemployed. And um, Orwell went up there, um, I think, simply as a journalist in, in search of a subject. I mean, it's sometimes seen as the, as the first stirring of this political awakening. But to read the diaries that he wrote when he was up there, he doesn't seem to know very much about the political 
situation or the left-wing politics in the north in the 1930s uh and he's it's full of sympathy it's full of it's full of empathy it's it's full of uh you know he is generally dis- distressed by what he sees and very sympathetic to the people he meets and outraged by the, the poor state of municipal housing up in these benighted northern towns that he goes to and uh, and then there's a very poli- it's uh, another fascinating just the second half of this very polemical uh, sort of uh, uh, response to, to the idea of socialism and left-wing politics in the 1930s where one of the things that Orwell exhibits is that he doesn't really know very much about his subject as yet so again it's it's a, it's a, it's a formative it, it's a formative book it's a it's a stepping stone on the way to which I think is his real political awakening, uh, which comes the following year uh, when he goes to Spain and, and, and fights in the Spanish Civil War. Why did Orwell decide to marry Eileen O'Shaughnessy? And what was she like? Eileen uh, uh, is uh, still, there's been a whole, you know, a whole biography has been written of Eileen by a, 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 a wonderful woman called Sylvia Topp, who researched her life. And even at the end of it, and even having read such letters for first time, I still can't quite get my head around Eileen. Orwell was completely, Orwell decided he wanted to marry her, which is the night he met her, um, you know, at a party in 1935. And uh, her letters, which are all that really survive of her, are the most wonderful things. They're wonderfully witty and uh uh well, she most most the ones that survive are mostly turned to a friend of hers called Laura Meyer. Uh, and they're her, her remarks, she was wonderfully astute about Orwell himself. I mean, he clearly neglected her at some times, and we know that he was unfaithful to her, but on the other hand, he, you know, very much, he, he was absolutely distraught at her death. But, but Eileen is very astute about Orwell in a way that many of those closest to him weren't. And so, for example, uh, the example I always quote is that in uh, the early years of the Second World War, uh, he wrote a very, a very radical pamphlet called The Lion of the Unicorn, subtitled Socialism and the English Genius. Uh, it's much more left-wing than anything that the British Labour Party was, was currently promulgating. Uh, and yet, all Orwell's instincts beyond politics were small-c conservative. He was a very old-fashioned man, a very old-fashioned outlook. And so Eileen writes to her friend Nora that, uh, you know, George is writing this book, um, and she sums it up as to how to be a socialist wild Tory, which I think is very funny, and in one sentence actually gets to the heart of one of the great contradictions of, of Orwell's outlook. Why did Orwell go to Spain to fight in the Spanish Civil War? I think he originally went because, uh, in in the way of many other writers, he wanted to he wanted to write journalism about it. He wanted to be a war reporter and uh, write reportage. But uh, as soon as he got there and saw what was going on uh, in revolutionary Barcelona in the first weeks of 1937, he changed his mind and decided that he had he had actually to fight because he believed so much in the cause that they were uh, that they were representing. Uh, he he thought when he when he when he got to Barcelona in 1937, he thought that he discovered a society in which there was genuine equality, uh, which was not something he thought would happen anywhere else in the world, in which people considered themselves equals and behaved as such. And this was so sort of um, revolutionary to him that I think he thought he wanted to be a part of it. Was he at all aware of the atrocities committed by the Republican forces in their zone? I think he was, I think he didn't really know very much about anything other than what he read in the English newspapers, which of course had their own sort of slanted view of, of these things. And he certainly, you know, as the war went on, he became aware of the atrocities <clears throat> perpetrated by both right and left. But um, the point of the, the interesting thing, the, the, the thing that I suppose is so, why it made it such, why 
uh, it became such a formative experience for him that is that although he was fighting against Franco uh, on the side of the Republic, he was in some he was almost literally being shot by both sides because he joined up with a a, a small um, Trotskyist um, splinter group, the POUM, rather than serving with the Marxist international brigade so on the one hand he was being he was literally he was shot through the throat by a fascist sniper uh while on guard duty one morning uh, and yet when he came back to barcelona uh, after, he, after he'd been in hospital um, he was pursued by um uh soviet uh, you know by, by soviet elements of the left who regarded his brand of of, um, of socialism as unorthodox and so he was virtually i mean he when he got out of spain he discovered that his name was on a death list so he could easily have been shot by his own side. So uh, that, that's what gives his writing, uh, his writings about Spain, such interest. Is that although that he's on politically on one side, he's, he's also fighting against people on his own side, being suspicious of his orthodoxy. So it was a very, very formative experience. And as he later said, it was, it was in Spain that he first saw what the uses to which propaganda could be put uh, by the left. You know that he saw accounts of battles. Uh, that hadn't taken place and sort of found, sort of troops, soldiers condemned for cowardice and he knew and fought bravely. And I think it, in some ways the beginnings of this, this long, long ca- campaign of you know, his, his writings about propaganda uh, and manipulation, um, so I think begin here in Spain in 1937. Why was his book Homage to Catalonia such a controversial one? It was controversial because it... Uh, it to use another phrase, it filled the Spanish beams and it uh, it indicated uh, very plainly what Russia had been up to uh, in Spain in 1937. And um, the controversy lay in the fact that he had a terrific row with the English left-wing newspaper, the New Statesman, for as uh, as he maintained, suppressing uh, suppressing his ability to tell the truth about Spain because it was thought that this would then frustrate uh, you know the whole of the Republican campaign against Franco and, and, and this you know, some of his most powerful writing of the late 1930s is along those lines, exposing what he thought were some of the deceits practiced in the name of the Spanish Republic. How did Orwell explain to himself and to other people his flip-flop on whether or not to support the UK in the Second World War? I think he, he according to him, it was an, a moment of revelation that he came back. He, he's, he'd been following us for the for, since he, after he came back from Spain, he's been following uh, the pacifist left-wing line, which was the war. If a war broke out, um, even if you know, if it were conducted against Nazi Germany, it was essentially a capitalist plot. Um, and then he came downstairs one morning, saw the news of the Russo-German pact, uh, in which um, uh, the non-aggression pact signed between the Soviet Union and Hitler in August 1939, and thought to him, and suddenly sort of saw through it and saw that if the only way to uh, try and get rid of the, the ter- what, he, what he called all the smelly little orthodoxies that are now contending for our souls, the only way, that there was, there was no point, you couldn't sit by and, and, and sort of adopt, a, a, you couldn't sit on the sidelines or anything like that was happening. You had actually to take sides. And so his side obviously was going to be against Nazi Germany. Did Orwell actually believe that the UK was going to experience a social revolution in 1940? I think in 1940 he actually did. If you read um, the, the line of the Unicorn, he seems to believe that the local defence volunteers, who later became the Home Guard, uh, you know, the local, local defence force, he, he seriously believed that they had the potential to be a kind of revolutionary army. Uh, and there is an essay in which he, he talks about, you know, that the rifles handed out to 
there was almost a suspicion that he thinks that the rifle handed out mental health guard could almost be used for insurrectionary purposes. Uh, he then quickly backtracked, and in, he, 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 he candidly admitted that he got it wrong and that the, there wasn't, you know, he detected an air of revolutionary feeling that didn't really exist. Uh, and so the uh, he, Socialism and the English Genius is published in 1941. He writes another essay in 1943 called The English People, which is much, much more muted and much, much, much more sort of gradualist, as we would say, uh, on the left here in England, much less the sort of much less believing that revolution is going to happen and just hoping that social change begins incrementally. But yes, he, it was a very radical position for 1940. Why did Orwell work at the BBC and how did he find it? Did he provide a model for parts of his novel in 1984? I think he works at the BBC because he was desperate for any kind of uh, work which would sort of facilitate the war effort. His his health was so bad. I mean, I should make the point that he suffered from all, from ill health all his adult life and probably before. His health was so bad in the early years of the war that he was graded C3, which means unfit for military service. He was desperate to find something to do. And the chance to not only to work for the BBC, but to broadcast to the East, which, you know, which he had many family associations and memories of, uh, seemed a really good idea. Retrospectively, he believed that his time at the BBC had been wasted. Uh, and um, he didn't like uh, the, the atmosphere there was uncongenial to it. In fact, some of the programming he was involved in, particularly the on-air poetry magazine Voice, was very innovative and brought together many prominent people of the time. You know, he was broadcasting uh, with T.S. Eliot and William Empson and people like that. Uh, so I think he, he exaggerates his hostility to the BBC. And, of course, with the atmosphere of the place, I think, did contribute something to 1984. I mean, the Ministry of Truth, where Winston laboured so joylessly in 1984, I think has something to do with the cramped corridors of Broadcasting House and 200 Oxford Street, where Orwell worked as a talks assistant. Uh, so I think, there's, I think there are... You know, the BBC probably contributed more to him than more to his development than he would perhaps allow. What were the origins of his novel Animal Farm, and why was it so difficult to publish? Animal Farm, um, he got the idea, I think, in the 1930s, simply from seeing a, a small boy pulling a cart, leading a cart down a, a country lane and thinking, you know, why can't the surely a beast of this size and uh, that he surely ought to be able to, you know, if, if, if it felt like it, could uh, could, could go off and, and leave the small boy far behind. Um it's a satire of the Russian Revolution, which he wrote very quickly between 1943, the end of 1943, beginning of 1944. Uh, it took him, I think, three months. The difficulties, there were many difficulties he had in publishing it, not all to do with its propagandist nature. Um, several publishers um, thought it was simply too short, 30,000 words, it's only 100 pages long. Um, there was a there was a kind of thought too that um, here at a time when the Soviet Union was our great ally and uh, Stalin was regarded as a kind of benevolent old uncle by even right wing people um, in England, Uncle Joe was he was he was known as. It was thought to be not ter a terribly good idea to publish a novel immensely critical of the entirety of the Soviet Revolution at a time when we were gearing up to D-Day. Having said that, there were forces at work uh, to, to prevent the novel from being published at all. Um, and in fact, uh, the publishing firm of Jonathan Cape in England, who had accepted it for publication, were warned off it uh, by a man subsequently revealed as a Soviet spy who worked for the Ministry of Information who made this point about... I mean, Orwell was very bitter about this, but he was also objective enough to find it funny. Um, there's an entry in his friend 
Innes Holden's diary sometime in 1944, where um, uh, after the book had been rejected on the grounds that, quote, Stalin wouldn't like it, Orwell said to his friend, you know, the idea of Joe Stalin, who doesn't understand any non any non uh, any European language, sitting in the Kremlin with a copy of Animal Farm, saying, "I don't like this," <laughs> so he could he could have used that as well. The other thing too, quite apart from from all these political uh, machinations, uh, paper was very short at the time. It was very difficult to publish any any kind of book, and so when, even when he was accepted for publication. Uh, by another, by by Secker and Warburg, um, it took many more months than they'd anticipated to be able to publish it, uh, and the book didn't actually come out until August 1945, when the war was over. Why was the novel so successful with the public? I think because it uh, not only was it did it have an evident political purpose, uh, you know, at, at a time when people were. Beginning Syria, obviously, with the war coming to an end, people were considering what would happen in the post-war world and the Soviet Union's role in it. Uh, it's also it's 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 got mass appeal. Uh, it appeal you know it appealed to a to a mass readership. In fact, Orwell spent the day of publication going around the West End bookshops in London and taking the books out of the children's section and putting them in the adult section. Uh, you know, it was a book that anybody could read, and it's got it's written with a freshness, an immediacy, and a vividness. You know, there's not a word out of place, and it's one of the greatest short novels ever written. Animal Farm it was immediately recognised, you know, by the public and the critics for those qualities. Uh, well, how did Orwell react to the death of his wife Eileen O'Shaughnessy in 1945? He was uh, at the time Orwell was uh, away in occupied Europe as a war. Respondent for the Observer and the Manchester Evening News, and um, again, he uh, Orwell's phlegmatism, his stoicism, uh, was much in evidence when Eileen died. Uh, he's supposed to remark to a friend that she quote wasn't a bad old stick, uh, and this has led to accusations of Orwell being sort of indifferent. But that's not the case. Friends who, who um, friends who he met in the weeks after her death, when he came back from uh, came back from Europe, say that he was absolutely devastated, and he. Makes the pay was so. Uh, one consequence of this was, I mean, he went around London in the following year in a state of complete sort of emotional breakdown. One of whose symptoms was that he, he would sort of propose marriage to any remotely plausible young woman that he came across, and um, all of them they all turned him down, and this made him even more unhappy. But he was, he he seemed at that point a desperately sad, wraith-like man. The immediately post-war period in London, trying, of course, to bring uh, with great to bring up his adopted son Richard, who at this point was uh, was barely you know it was only just over a year old, but and well quite easily just returned him, you know, to the adoption services. Whereas he made a made a very successful effort to bring him up himself. Why, in God's name, did Orwell decide to bury himself in the far northern Scottish island of Jura? Mm. Uh, he'd always had this. The idea of retreating to a Hebridean island turns up in his diaries very early on in the Second World War, although he wasn't able to fulfill this dream until after the war had ended. Uh, his friend Anthony Pohl had a theory that this was one of Orwell's ways of coping with success, that, um, you know, the, the first sort of, uh, the first hint of fame and money, he Orwell immediately wanted to retreat from it. He was also, I think, on, he was terrified of what might happen to Richard. He thought there was going to be a nuclear war. And he thought that one of the ways in which you might be able to avoid some of its worst consequences was, was to be as far away as possible. Uh, so there, there he was. He also thought he might be able to do more work up in Jura rather than constantly being frustrated by sort of social things and, 
a telephone's ringing. So he spent uh, he spent quite a lot of the last four years of his life living on Jura and uh, and getting on with his final novel, 1984. Why did Orwell compile a list of communist and pro-communist figures which he shared with the Foreign Office? This is the famous list uh, composed for the International Research Department of the Foreign Office in 1949. And um, I can, a lot of, there, there have been attempts to sort of, um, uh, to criticise Orwell for um, uh, exposing people to the light of public scrutiny and, and sort of, you know, calling them out. and, and, and fra- But in fact, um, uh, the this, the work we did for the Foreign Office had a perfectly brief, straightforward explanation. This was 1949. The Cold War was beginning. Many of the former democracies of Eastern Europe were falling, you know, falling to Soviet, falling down to sort of Soviet stooge governments placed there by Moscow. And uh, the, the International Research Department of the Foreign Office uh, had, a, had a brief to, to issue pamphlets, um, uh, printed work, advocating the desirability of democracy in the East. And it was important that the people they got to write these pamphlets were not fellow travelling Soviet stooges who would undermine the basis of the operation. And so, although Orwell's list has some quite odd names on it, uh, it does have many people who on no shouldn't have been anywhere near writing pamphlets of that sort. And um, the, 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 the instance that I always quote of just how deep, how deeply embedded Soviet espionage was in the British establishment at this point was that uh, Celia Kerwin, the woman who, who commissioned these pamphlets and who Orwell supplied his notor- supposedly notorious list, the man who sat at the desk next to her was Guy Burgess, subsequently, uh, subsequently exposed to the Soviet spy. So those were the kind of conditions in which one was operating in the late 1940s. And I, so I think you know the, the occasional note of spirit that's stuck about this is, is, is somewhat exaggerated. What were the origins of his novel in 1984, and why was it so successful? 1984's origins, I think, go back to the Tehran conference of late 1943, in which Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin effectively sat down and, and sort of parceled up the post-war world into zones of influence. Oh, I was fascinated by this, the idea that the world was turning into a series of huge, endlessly contending uh, autocracies. I think he got the idea there. It took him quite a long time to work all this out. And in fact, one of the fascinations of 1984's development, of course, he was seriously increasingly ill at the time, but he's, he's working out his intellectual position on all of this and kind of formulate, getting the background to this, this extraordinary dystopian landscape um, together. Um, I think the re- one of the reasons it was, there were several reasons for its huge success, one of which, obviously, there are political implications. It was seen as an attack on the Soviet Union, although it's, I think, more properly described as an attack on totalitarianism generally. Uh, but that aspect, or this is a time again, uh, you know, when, when the Cold War has become very serious, uh, late 1949, um, you know, America and with Britain's support and uh, the West and the East were uh, beginning to, uh, you know, were eyeing each other up very suspiciously. I think one of the reasons for its success in the UK was that it uses the landscapes of war-torn London. I mean, the all the all the great landmarks of Oceania uh, in uh, in um, in 1984 are actually based on things that Orwell could see on his bus ride home uh, from Tribune, the left-wing magazine where he worked in the mid-1940s, Trafalgar Square with the with Nelson's central place by the statue of Big Brother, that that sort of thing. And I think uh, this old uh, I think a lot of the original readers thought. Yes, this is supposed to be set in 1948, 
1984, but it's our world. It's the world that we can see outside our window, given this frightening, yeah, you know, this, this frightening dystopian twist. So although it's a prophecy or a warning, as all well described it, it's also a very realistic novel about the, you know, the sights and sounds of 1940s London. Does 1984 still speak to us today? Uh, I think it does. I mean, it's uh, it's warnings about uh, uh, you know what what has happened to the, the concept of objective truth about surveillance technology, about uh, the state being able to open a window into the mind of the average citizen. I think, well, you know, it's extraordinary. It's, a, it's an extraordinary prophetic book in in, in many ways, and um, I think uh, you know we we can see this in the way that. Um, uh, you know, sales when anything particularly awful happens in the world, when people start talking about alternative facts or when, you know, a particular sort of technological outrage is brought upon us, sales suddenly spike and up it goes again. And uh, you know, it must be pointed out that uh, I think in the week that Donald Trump was inaugurated as president in 2017, the Amazon sales went up by 950%. as a direct correlation. <laughs> Why was Orwell so anti-Catholic? Um, I think that he was actually he was educated very early on by Catholic by Catholic nuns. Uh, but I think he thought I, I don't think they were particular. I don't think they were unkind to him or anything. Uh, and he took he but he did he was anti-Catholic. You're quite correct, and he did think that Catholicism was a form of totalitarianism. But he also took a serious interest in Catholicism, the faith, and several times wrote that it should be taken seriously because the people advocated it. And in fact, there's a very, I found one of the new letters that Scout, this very, very interesting one, where he had a kind of controversy with the Jesuit theologian, Father Martindale. And, uh, you know, there, sort of, there is a slight connection between the meeting, I think, that Orwell had with him and between some, and some of the themes in 1984 where O'Brien, his principal interrogator, is at one point described as resembling, quote, even a priest. And I'm just—I slightly wonder whether that scene had its origins in Orwell's dispute with Father Martindale back in 1932. Why did Orwell decide to get married when he was mortally ill? Um, I think he—he'd been—he'd been wanting to get married for some time, and I think there were there were practical. I mean, he obviously obviously very much in love with with Samuel Brown or his second wife, but there were practical reasons as that he needed. He knew that he was dying. I think he knew that he was dying by that point. He needed somebody to look after his affairs, and he needed somebody to, to look after Richard, the adopted son. So I think there were a lot of practical reasons as well as emotional ones. And he was he was very much cheered by the marriage. His friends make this point. It perked him up no end. And he uh, it was at one point thought that he might actually have sufficient uh, in physical resources to recover. But then he had a relapse in November 1949. It was clear after that that he was going to die. And, uh, and Sonia, although she didn't take any great interest in Richard, who was eventually brought up by his aunt, well, sister Avril, uh, Sonia was a very efficient, at least for the early part, of, for the first few years, was a very efficient custodian at his interests and did, uh, you know, did the original four-volume collected uh, journalism essays and letters. And, uh, you know, he could, he could have done worse than to, to leave her in charge of his affairs, although she was eventually swindled. Uh, or uh, if not swindled, then um, uh, grievously sort of let down by his accountants towards the end of her life. Was Orwell still read as a secular saint? A secular saint. That's a very interesting phrase. I think he's, I, I would, rather than describing him as a secular saint, I describe him as a piece of moral litmus paper. Uh, and if you dip it into the waters of whatever's going on in the world, 
these days, you get pretty clear indication of, of, of the, the best way to think about it, the best way to respond. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, DJ Taylor, for being so kind and speak with us today. This is Charlie. Thank you for your excellent, You're quite welcome. You for your excellent questions. And again, let me thank you very much. You've been listening to uh, New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you once again, DJ Taylor. Thank you very much.